window, looking at nothing in the darkness. Who? Figgy Cuccinello, that movie director who was indicted for having sex with a young starlet? How young? Fifteen, I think. That's pretty young. Yes, it is, Chris agreed. He fled to Argentina, where he's been for ten years. Now he's homesick, wants to come back and start making dreadful movies again. He says his art is calling him home. Seventeen wouldn't bother me. Fifteen's too young. His offer is up to five million. The president turned and looked at Kritz. He's offering five million for a pardon? Yes, and he needs to move quickly. The money has to be wired out of Switzerland. It's three in the morning over there. With his right hand, the president began scratching the back of his neck, something he always did when wrestling with a difficult decision. Ten minutes before he almost nuked North Korea, he'd scratched until the skin broke and blood oozed onto the collar of his white shirt. The answer is no, he said. Fifteen is too young. Without a knock, the door opened, and Artie Morgan, the president's son, barged in holding a Heineken in one hand and some papers in the other. Just talk to the CIA, he said casually. He wore faded jeans and no socks. Maynard's on the way over. He dumped the papers on the desk and left the room, slamming the door behind him. The president moved toward his leather rocker. What's the latest on Backman, he asked. In his 18 years as director of the CIA, Teddy Maynard had been to the White House less than ten times, and never for dinner, he always declined for health reasons, and never to say howdy to a foreign hotshot, he couldn't have cared less. Back when he could walk, he had occasionally stopped by to confer with whoever happened to be president, and perhaps one or two of his policymakers. Now, since he was in a wheelchair, his conversations with the White House were by phone. The only advantage of being in a wheelchair was that it provided a wonderful excuse to go or stay or do whatever he damn well pleased. No one wanted to push around an old crippled man. A spy for almost fifty years, he now preferred the luxury of looking directly behind himself when he moved about. He traveled in an unmarked white van, bulletproof glass, lead walls, two heavily armed boys perched behind the heavily armed driver, with his wheelchair clamped to the floor in the rear and facing back, so that Teddy could see the traffic that could not see him. He was wrapped in a heavy gray quilt, intended to by Hobie, his faithful aide. As the van moved along the beltway at a constant sixty miles an hour, Teddy sipped green tea poured from a thermos by Hobie and watched the cars behind them. Hobie sat next to the wheelchair on a leather stool made especially for him. A sip of tea and Teddy said, Where's Backman right now? In his cell, Hobie answered. And our people are with the warden? They're sitting in his office, waiting. Another sip. How long will it take to get him out of the country? About four hours. And the plan is in place? Everything is ready. We're waiting on the green light. Teddy sighed. I hope this moron can see it my way. Kritz and the moron were staring at the walls of the Oval Office, their heavy silence broken occasionally by a comment about Joel Backman. What will the press do if I pardon Backman? The president asked, not for the first time. Go berserk. That might be fun. You won't be around, Kritz said. No, I won't. After the transfer of power at noon the next day, his escape from Washington would begin with a private jet, owned by an oil company, to an old friend's villa on the island of Barbados. After Barbados, he would sneak up to his cabin in Alaska, and there he would continue to ignore the world as the winter passed, and he waited on spring. Should we pardon him? the president asked. Probably, Kritz said.
There's a very good chance we wouldn't be here had it not been for Joel Backman. The president nodded. Six years ago, the Backman scandal had engulfed much of Washington and eventually tainted the White House. A cloud appeared over a popular president, paving the way for Arthur Morgan to stumble his way into the White House. Now that he was stumbling out, he relished the idea of one last arbitrary slap in the face to the Washington establishment that had shunned him for four years. A reprieve for Joel Backman would rattle the walls of every office building in D.C. and shock the press into a blathering frenzy. The president smiled. On the Arlington Memorial Bridge, over the Potomac River, Hobie refilled the director's cup with green tea. Thank you, Teddy said softly. What's our boy doing tomorrow when he leaves office? he asked. Fleeing the country. He plans to spend a month in the Caribbean, licking his wounds, ignoring the world, pouting, waiting for someone to show some interest. And Mrs. Morgan? She's already back in Delaware, playing bridge. Are they splitting? Teddy asked. If he's smart, who knows? Teddy took a careful sip of tea. So what's our leverage if Morgan balks? None, really. He's an idiot, but he's a clean one. They turned off Constitution Avenue onto 18th Street and were soon entering the east gate of the White House. Artie, minus the Heineken, and again without knocking, poked his head through the door and announced, Maynard's here. So he's alive, the president said. Barely. Then roll him in. Hobie and a deputy named Pretty followed the wheelchair into the Oval Office. The president and Critz welcomed their guests and directed them to the sitting area in front of the fireplace. Though Maynard avoided the White House, Pretty practically lived there, briefing the president every morning on intelligence matters. As they settled in, Teddy glanced around the room, as if looking for bugs and listening devices. He tried to smile at President Morgan, but he wanted to say something like, You are without a doubt the most limited politician I have ever encountered. Only in America could a moron like you make it to the top. President Morgan smiled at Teddy Maynard and wanted to say something like, I should have fired you four years ago. Your agency has been a constant embarrassment to this country. Critz said loudly, Coffee, anyone? Teddy said, No. And as soon as that was established, Hobie and Pretty likewise declined. And because the CIA wanted no coffee, President Morgan said, Yes, black with two sugars. Critz nodded at a secretary who was waiting in a half-open side door. He turned back to the gathering and said, We don't have a lot of time. Teddy said quickly, I'm here to discuss Joel Backman. Yes, that's why you're here, the president said. As you know, Teddy continued, almost ignoring the president, Mr. Backman went to prison without saying a word. He still carries some secrets that, frankly, could compromise national security. You can't kill him, Critz blurted. We cannot target American citizens, Mr. Critz. It's against the law. We prefer that someone else do it. I don't follow, the president said. Here's the plan. If you pardon Mr. Backman, and if he accepts the pardon, then we will have him out of the country in a matter of hours. He must agree to spend the rest of his life hiding. This should not be a problem, because there are several people who would like to see him dead, and he knows it. We'll relocate him to a foreign country, probably in Europe, where he'll be easier to watch. He'll have a new identity. He'll be a free man. And with time, people will forget about Joel Backman. That's not the end of the story, Critz said. No. We'll wait, perhaps a year or so, then we'll leak the word in the right places. 
They'll find Mr. Backman, and they'll kill him. And when they do so, many of our questions will be answered. A long pause as Teddy looked at Kretz, then the President. When he was convinced they were thoroughly confused, he continued, It's a very simple plan, gentlemen. It's a question of who kills him. So you'll be watching? Kritz asked. Very closely. Who's after him? The President asked. Teddy recoiled a bit, then he looked down his long nose like a schoolteacher addressing his little third graders. Perhaps the Russians, the Chinese, maybe the Israelis, there could be others. Why would Backman take such a deal? Kritz asked. He may not, Teddy answered, but he's been in solitary confinement for six years. That's 23 hours a day in a tiny cell, one hour of sunshine, three showers a week, bad food. They say he's lost 60 pounds. I hear he's not doing too well. Two months ago, after the landslide, when Teddy Maynard conceived this pardon scheme, he had pulled a few of his many strings, and Backman's confinement had grown much worse. The temperature in his cell was lowered ten degrees, and for the past month he'd had a terrible cough. His food, bland at best, had been run through the processor again and was being served cold. His toilet flushed about half the time. The guards woke him up at all hours of the night. His phone privileges were curtailed. The law library that he used twice a week was suddenly off-limits. Backman, a lawyer, knew his rights, and he was threatening all manner of litigation against the prison and the government, though he had yet to file suit. The fight was taking its toll. He was demanding sleeping pills and Prozac. "'You want me to pardon Joel Backman so you can arrange for him to be murdered?' the President asked. "'Yes,' Teddy said bluntly. "'But we won't actually arrange it. But it'll happen.' Yes, and his death will be in the best interests of our national security.